So good morning, one and all. This final thought, I'm just, I'm just trying to see if I can keep my musicians on their toes. That's like the code word, like this final thought, like get up here and get your guitar tuned at the end. So I just thought I'd start with that just to see if he's paying attention. He's not. I've managed to lull him completely to sleep by joking around with this, this final thought kind of thing. And you know, that's a kickback. That's a Pauline reference. And this is how dumb I and geeky I am. You know how many times in the New Testament Paul says, well, this, you know, finally my brethren, and then he goes on for another four chapters. And you're like, can you just finally... It's like every seminary class ever, it's like it's never over, it just keeps unfolding. So anyway, that's my, that's my this final thought joke, and it went over very poorly just now, Trey, in case you didn't notice. <laughs> I'm just messing with the musicians. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm messing with all of you all the time. I'm trying to, to, to sort of provoke new thinking and keeping you on your toes. It's kind of what I love to do, and if that bothers you, then we can chat later at, at, uh, at radio, maybe, since it's 100 degrees outside, and we can do that, so... Well, as always, it's good to see your faces here this morning. Last Sunday, after the second service, and Trey alluded to this a little bit, but last Sunday, Trey and I drove up to North Central Austin and had a cigar and lunch with someone you're going to meet soon. His name is Rabbi Neil Blumhoff. He's a remarkable guy. He is the senior rabbi at a synagogue up on the north side where he's been for 24 years, which is a really, really long time. He teaches at the Episcopal Seminary in town. He teaches at the Presbyterian Seminary in town. He's the guy in town for interfaith dialogue, and he's very gentle and gracious. And so we began a series of conversations that you're going to get to really, really enjoy two weeks from today. And so here's my confession to you. I've hung out with a lot of really cool people in my time. Like, I've hung out with some really neat people. But I've never smoked or ate an egg sandwich with a rabbi. That was the first. That was the first. And honestly, I have to admit, I was terrified. We drove up the Mopac, and I'm like, Trey, we got to rehearse. we got to practice. I'm going to say something dumb. He's like, no, you don't know Neil. You don't have to practice. You just show up and, and have a conversation. I'm like, no, I'm going to blow this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up. I was afraid that I might say something, right, about the way that we've been having this conversation over the summer. I was afraid that the way we've been dealing with these old stories, which belong to the Jewish faith, I was afraid that in revealing sort of the premise and the framework of all of this, that I was going to somehow get yelled at, I guess, is what I was thinking, right? This is his sacred text, after all, and I've been trying to deal with it with great respect, but totally to the contrary of what I was afraid of, the rabbi was so gracious and gentle. Apparently, according to him, we've been holding them with due respect and curiosity, which is the only way to do it. It's the only way to hold these stories. Anyway, in a few weeks, you're going to get to hear from him directly. Uh, this is becoming a new conviction of mine and a very strongly held conviction, and I'm sure you've watched it sort of evolve over the last few weeks. The Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament, belong to the good rabbi's tradition. They belong to the Jewish faith. They don't belong to us. They're not our books. It belonged to Jewish people long before Christians got their hands on them. Now, here's, here's what I want you to hear. We think we see shadows of Jesus in everything ever written from the Old Testament. I'm just going to tell you my new conviction is that is absolutely not true. It is absolutely not true. And if that upsets your faith, hang with it for a while. Ride this out and see if you don't get to some smooth waters on the backside of this storm. You see, we were taught that everything in their testament, season one, refers to the main character of season two, Jesus, for us. But it's not the case. It actually does great violence to ancient texts when we think. We call it anthropomorphism. We read through our time and we see connections to what we think is there. But the problem is, friends, these texts belong to them. I was terrified to run that past him, but it turns out it feels like we're right on track. So miss everything else in your life. Miss your first class. Miss your first day of work. Miss your interview for your next But do not miss uh, August 14th here with Trey. I'm going to be in California tragically. But, um, there's nothing tragic about San Diego, but I'm going to be in California on a side business thing that I've, that I've got going on. 
So I won't be here, but Trey's going to have that conversation. And trust me, you don't want to miss it. You want to actually catch it live. It's not the same on screen. And I promise you it won't be the same at the 9.30 and the 11. So if you're a real groupie, you might want to come and stay for both. These two guys, you guys know how unpredictable Trey is. Trey's like, Trey's like predicting the direction of the wind. You just never know what's going to come next. Well, you put him with a rabbi and a couple of cigars, and I have no idea what's going to happen. But it'll be art both times, so you don't want to miss that. So definitely put that on your calendar. Well, today we turn our attention to King David from the Old Testament. And I want to offer you this disclaimer. I am a nerd. I love old research, and I go down deep sometimes. I go down so hard sometimes that I'm literally watching people's phone recordings of academic research papers delivered at University of Exeter in England or Oxford or whatever. I I go down hard, and I have to just say this isn't going to be the most inspiring sermon. I've been reading really deep in history around the the, the origins of the, the Israelite people, and so it'll get better next week, I promise. A fish swallows a missionary next week, and so you definitely want to be here for that. Anyway, we're going to be talking about King David. As I'm sure you're aware, he's a major protagonist. He's a major character in the Old Testament. In fact, the name David turns up more in the Old Testament than any other name. It's the most referenced character in the Old Testament. Even if, now hear me, it appears absolutely nowhere else in the historical record. It turns up all over the Old Testament. Interestingly, we're not even sure that a king named David ever united a kingdom named Israel or Judah or accomplished what the Bible claims that he did. Now, that's a bit of a quick drop right into the deep end of the pool here. I wonder if that thought shocks you. We are unsure that David ever existed the way we were told. But if you're feeling the tiniest bit open-minded, and I'm guessing you are because it's 11 o'clock on a Sunday and you're here after all this, then let's ask ourselves this broad and important question together. It's the same one we've been asking all summer around these, these last several weeks around these old Hebrew stories, and here's what it is. What would have to change about your experience of God if some of this material was actually never supposed to be taken literally? Now hang with me. The temperature's gonna go up a little bit and it'll settle in a minute. Just going back a few weeks. For example... Genesis 1, Genesis 2. If the creation narrative was actually a poetic metaphor about God's love of a people, of people, and that those beloved people's coming of age, does that fundamentally alter your personal experience of God? If it wasn't an actual seven-day eyewitness account of how things came to be, does something essential about your view of God have to change? Has God not been patient with you and your coming of age? That's how the Jews read that story. Has God not been supportive, even encouraging, of your pursuit of experience and knowledge? Okay, implying an answer there. Or this one. If the story of Noah and the great flood was actually borrowed and baptized from Mesopotamian mythology, and if it was a regional event, not some global catastrophic flood that we were taught, does that destroy something essential about how you relate to God? A God who is always willing to preserve you, always willing to begin again. Does something fundamental have to change? Again, I'm implying an answer there. I wonder if you get my point. What about you and what you know to be true about your experience with the divine would have to change if you were to hold these stories just a little more loosely, a little bit more metaphorically, with a touch more humor and whimsy and perhaps pro-science, open-minded, interfaith curiosity? Can I point out to you that that is exactly what we have been doing all summer, discovering together what changes about God in us and our story when we give ourselves the permission to ask these hard questions we were told, don't ask. I guess what I'm suggesting slowly, brick on brick, over time, systematically, is that you and I end up winning in the end if we can turn this corner. If we can follow curiosity and honesty rather than certainty and fragility and 4th century Augustinian literalism or heresy known as biblical literalism. 
We don't have to make our history or the history of the Jewish people be anything that it cannot be. And I simply want to say it again. It cannot be read as eyewitness account because it was not written for that purpose or it was not written in that way. I hope this honesty is beginning to set you free this summer. That's my prayer. So now I'll pause. Pause one second here. By now you know me a little bit. You know how I speak and how I think. We don't just drive around on Sunday mornings. We go places. For me, everything connects. Everything is processed. Everything prepares us for something new. This is what it means to engage Scripture together. It's also why my intros are painfully long. Because I'm stacking bricks. I'm trying to go somewhere, right? But we know this is how we engage Scripture. We've been being prepared for this time for a really long time. Which is why I can say without shocking you too much that I'm not convinced David ever existed. At least not like you and I were taught. Now hang with me, hang with me. Not as some consummate king who ruled from the Egyptian border all the way to the Euphrates River to the north. I'm not convinced by that. Here's the truth, and I'll just let the cat out of the bag for you this morning. There is zero archaeological evidence that David controlled that much of the ancient Near East. There just isn't. 200 years of concerted, intentional archaeological research has produced, has produced nothing but a single mention on a single stone as an afterthought of the conquests of a king of Damascus. You can put the stone on the screen now, Garrett. I want you to look at this. This is the sum total of all the evidence we've ever found that points to anyone named David existing the way we thought. Right there, in white, towards the bottom. Not much left. It simply mentions that I conquered the leader of the house of David. That's the only mention we have right there. That's called the Tell Dan Steli. If you want to research it, you can go on YouTube and come out weeks later after watching things about this. Now, a mention, thank you for that picture, is not not a thing. It is a thing. It is rather extraordinary for your, something around your life to turn up on someone else's stone. But it's a very meager bit of evidence left behind by supposedly the greatest of all ancient kings of the people of Israel. That's what we have. That's all we have. Millions of dollars, friend, have been spent to defend the Bible's version of King David's grandeur in this amazing, uh, ornate kingdom. But alas, he only really exists in the texts and in the imagination of a small group of people known as Israelites. And then, of course, in the ways that the followers of Jesus have later historically come to appropriate those stories as their own. I'm told you can always tell a biblical literalist kicking around the archaeological digs in the Holy Land because they have a trowel in one hand and a Bible in the other. And they're always trying to make them match. And I hate to tell you, friend, it almost never happens. What do we have that points to David the way we were taught? Nothing, nada. That's what we found to prove the biblical account of David. No definitive proof that David reigned over a vast kingdom from Mesopotamia to Egypt, as the Bible claims. There's just nothing in terms of evidence that confirms that. But you don't have to agree with that. And hang on, I'm going to pull some things and we're going to reassemble something of value. You don't have to agree with me on that. This isn't an essential matter of faith in my opinion. But just know this, just know this. I would never drop an idea like this on you abruptly without preparing you for weeks in advance, slowly over a long period of time. We've been inching our way here. We can hold faith through the question of fact. We've been doing it. That's what disciples do. Now, I do think there was a man named David who in fact was a king of ancient Israel, I think he would have been a regional chieftain, a leader of a small army, probably 600 mercenaries like it shows up in scripture. And I believe he lived between two great kingdoms, Egypt to the south, Mesopotamia to the north, and the increasingly the Philistines landing, the seafaring people landing on the shores and pushing their way east. David was no doubt their finest early leader of the people of Israel, but he was, was he everything that they claimed? Very, very doubtful. 
The Jewish people were master appropriators of the stories of origin and divine purpose of others. We see this in Noah's flood and the Tower of Babel. They knew how to listen deeply to indigenous cosmology when they encountered it and then retell variations of those same stories in ways that laid the honor of those stories at the, at the feet of their God named Yahweh, who was still a new God in the ancient Near East. And that's one of the theories about the conquests of David as preserved in Scripture. His exploits and military victories match almost exactly the movements of a certain Egyptian pharaoh named Tutmosis III who lived five centuries before David. In fact, a very compelling case has been made recently in academia that David is the Hebrew reference to that pharaoh. I hope you know this by now that all things Hebrew are formed and incubated in Egypt in one way or the other. Maybe you're beginning to catch that. Anyway, Tutmosis III did conquer the kingdoms of Eden, Edom and Moab and Amnon, all to the east of the Jordan River Valley. Valley, Valley. The thing is, is that the Egyptians kept meticulous records of everything. They keep the best records of any empire in the ancient world. And they had a standing army that could have pulled it off. And here's the fact. David did not. The Judean countryside over which he supposedly ruled was sparsely populated in the 10th century. It's still sparsely populated. That's the century David was said to have dominated that area. But there simply is no archaeological evidence of population centers robust and full enough of people to have produced the volume of fighting men that it would have required to, to do the exploits that the Bible claims David did. Several times the scriptures, I said this before, mention that he led a fighting force of 600 men. That feels believable to me. Enough to conquer Edom and Moab and Ammon? And then march north and defeat the Arab, the mighty Arameans? I, doubt, I don't think so. That feels like a stretch, if I'm honest. I hope some truth this morning and some honesty is okay. Could the life, of, the life and the exploits of David have been appropriated from previous lore and epic stories of conquest from other cultures? It's possible. It's possibly even likely, in my view. The overlaps are striking, but we'll never know for certain. Also, and you expect this little pivot by now, if we dig down too deep in the fossil record and the record-keeping of the ancient Near East, we're going to miss the point of all these stories. We're going to miss the point of David altogether. I think David was a man of his times who did great things given his natural giftings and his low birth status in the rural Judean tribal life. He was crafty and cunning and cruel at times. He was beloved and feared and a master poet and a master liturgist. But I do think hyperbole had its way with the details over the centuries. And in case you're worried that I've lost my mind, I believe that I have not lost my mind, which is my favorite sentence of all. I don't think I've lost my mind. Of course I don't think that. That's the definition of being convinced, right? And in case you think I've lost my mind, I'm not alone in this. Academia has been writing about this for five decades. And feeling a tiny bit sheepish, pun intended, about Israel's beloved shepherd boy, I asked Rabbi Neil to his face last week if he was certain that David lived and reigned the way the Old Testament claims. I was fully expecting him to deliver a rebuke for my disrespect and my insolence, but he did not. He just shrugged and puffed his cigar and asked, are we certain it matters? <laughs> Here's the thing. There are still many, many good reasons to elevate the story of David exactly as our text preserves it, accepting this ancient man as an example of faith in Yahweh, an example of repentance, whether or not we can fully distill fact from fiction in the fossil record. And that's your clue if you're looking for the reasons why David moves me so deeply. David was the king of a small but extremely important group of people known as the Israelites. Well, he was the second king, to be precise. Saul was the first king. And David ruled some 40 years, we believe, from the former Jebusite city, the capital of Jerusalem, referred to to this day as the city of David. But to me, friend, David was so much more than just the leader of Israel. He was the king of contrition. He was the monarch of mistakes. He was the regent of repentance. He was the sovereign with a soft heart. 
And we'll crack into the text here in a moment. But first, I'd like to hear from you. So power on for the microphone. What do you know about the story of David? What facts, what details, what things do you know about David? Go ahead. Open mic, open floor. Who was this man? The man who spellbound a whole congregation of ANCers. Come on, guys. You know, you know more about David than probably any other figure in Scripture. Who was David? Yes, right here. They describe him as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. That's a title very sparingly used. Used a lot around David, also a little bit around Samuel, but otherwise it's not used anywhere in Scripture. Yes, what else? Somebody else? What do we know about David? He's a guy whose empathy and cruelty were so extreme it seems hard to belong to the same person sometimes. His what and cruelty? His empathy and his cruelty yep. were so extreme at times. Yep. yep. This is a guy who could be as vindictive as any ancient, ancient hero could be. Cruel beyond measure. Yep. But he was a contrast, wasn't he, David? Yes. Yes, he was. Who else? What do we know about David? His best friend was Jonathan, Saul's uh, son, and it speaks at length about how he loved Jonathan. Are you, are you certain that was his best friend? No, I am not. <laughs> what, do you, what do you suspect that might have been? Uh, more than a friend. <laughs> this being ANC, of course. <laughs> friends, uh, they were more than friends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to the degree that a Christian can say that in the 20, 21st century. But yeah, I love how you gently lay that. that his good friend, Jonathan. I love it. We'll get to that in a second. What else do we know about David? Yes, right here. He was a worshiper, a psalmist. Not only did he worship God for what he did, but worship God for who he was. Right, yeah. He pushed way, way, way past the exchange of, you know, naming the accomplishments of this mighty God. There was a personal connection, wasn't there, with, with Yahweh. Yeah, for sure. Who he was, yeah. What else? What else do we know about David? Y'all are forgetting all of his big peccadilloes. Come on, y'all. This, what do we know? Huh? Where? So, yeah, so David had a thing with Bathsheba, and then he had to deal with the fact that he had gotten her pregnant, and here was the, the father was yep. going to find out about it, so he had him put on the front line and killed. Right, rather spectacular peccadillo, I might say, yes. Yes, so the story of Bathsheba, the tragic loss of the child, and then Bathsheba goes on to be the mother of whom, we think? Solomon, right. About, about which there is literally zip zero nada in the archaeological record. That might be complete fabrication, Solomon. Anyway, sorry. What else? What else do we know about David? Y'all don't think anything? You don't, you don't think about a giant, as an unusually targe, large person? <laughs> There's no giants in the room in here? Yeah. Okay, yeah. What else? Well, he killed Goliath, and he was probably well known for dancing skills. Oh, he was known for his dancing skills. Yeah, mostly when he danced buck naked. That's how we do that in Texas. You know the difference? This is a Texan joke. You know the difference between naked and being naked? Naked's when you're up to something. You didn't get that? Never mind. Dad jokes. Yeah, he danced. He danced around, didn't he? And what was the event? What was he dancing to commemorate when his wife, like, lost it at him and, like, insulted him? What was he dancing in front of? Does anyone remember? What were they bringing back to Jerusalem for the first time in hundreds of years? David Nick said it back there. What was it? The Ark of the Covenant. It had been captured. 
It had been held up by the Philistines, and so David wanted to bring it back to the city that he thought it might belong in. And and in front of this whole processional, he dances like a fool. So a man who killed a giant. Anybody remember about bears and lions, oh my, and all of that, right? So here's the thing about David. We, thank you. We probably know more details about the character development of this man than any other man in Scripture. We know far more details about David than we know about Jesus. Did you know that? Way more. Entire books in two parts written about the life of this man, the idealized king of Israel. We could go a thousand directions with David. We could spend a whole year. We won't. Just know this. To study David is to study the very identity of the Jewish people, the formation of the Jewish, Jewish nation, which is why the research this week has been difficult and thick and lots of dead ends and lots of interesting things. But we could go a million directions, but time won't allow it. Very briefly, here's what I want to do. I want to point out a few stories that might help us get a sense of why this ancient chieftain has left such a mark on the world. As review, just to get us up to the 10th century BCE where we are. As you know, Egypt incubated uh, the, the children of Abraham. Abraham went down to Egypt. His Sarah was given to one of the pharaohs as a wife. We don't know if that had offspring, whether that became part of the lineage of Abraham or not. But Egypt figures importantly. It's where the children of Abraham were incubated. And eventually, they all go down there. Moses, Abraham, all of, even Jesus, uh, when, he, when his parents feared for his life. But eventually they emerge and they head back north to the land of Canaan, settling between empires. Years go by until Samuel, who was a great prophet, who was also uh, the, the most influential in the last of the season of the period of Judges, uh, when he steps on center stage. And in, in the twilight of his years, towards the end of his days, as most fathers did in the ancient world, he thought he might set his sons up to go on and lead after him. But they were scallywags and charlatans, and the people hated them. And so they insisted that Israel be, uh, anoint a king like every other nation around that part of the world had. And so Samuel, against his better judgment, he's cajoled by the people into anointing a king to lead the nation of Israel. And I say cajoled because Yahweh made it very clear through Samuel that they needed no king whatsoever. In fact, to have one in order to be like every other nation of the earth would mean some pretty rotten things. Yahweh relented to the people's demands. He didn't personally hold Samuel accountable. But he offers this warning label, and it comes to us in 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm just going to read it. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you, verse 11. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. It's starting to sound like the Western world, isn't it? It's starting to sound strangely contemporary. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. And you might think after hearing all of this, the people of Israel might say, you know what, on second thought, siempre no, no queremos un rey. We don't need a king. We don't need this now. We change our mind. We change our mind. But no, no, they didn't. He goes on, he will take your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves And on the day that you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. And that's exactly how the history of Israel unfolds. Saul, their first choice, head and shoulders above everyone else, turned out to be a total disaster. And then after Saul comes David, who is known for humility, not pride like Saul. But he was just a child when Samuel anointed him king. Well, that's one version of the story. Another says that David was a skilled musician known throughout those parts as a, as a musician whose older brothers were fighting the Philistines in the company of Saul. And Saul, being a tortured man of many fears and phobias, needed the soothing music of a skilled musician to calm himself at night. And David was picked for the gig. Some stories say that that's how he came to be known in the court of Saul. 
But here's the question. How did David distinguish himself in ancient Israel doing a job that wasn't supposed to be a thing anyway? It's clear this nation needs no king, according to Yahweh. How does he distinguish himself and become the ideal in that space? And what through lines can we distill from his story that might inspire us? Well, two come to mind for me. Number one, he was not the natural choice to lead. Nothing about this young boy said he was a natural leader. He wasn't the oldest or the tallest or even the best looking, despite the artistic embellishments of Michelangelo during the Renaissance and then the subsequent disembellishments of those particular parts with fig leaves and you know the whole thing, right? David was the last of his brothers and trusted only with tending the sheep to feed the family. That was his sole charge. He was not king material. He just wasn't. Yahweh's consistent selection of the least likely to succeed would go on, however, to become a major theme throughout Scripture. So that stands out to me about the life of David. And then this, in addition to not being the natural choice to lead, David was a man full of flawed character, was he not? He was prone to make mistakes. He blew it royally often. He was known as an adulterer. At times he was a lazy warrior, not leading his armies when he should have been. He was often irreverent, often sacrilegious, violent, and cruel, and possibly in love with the daughter as well as the son of Saul simultaneously. Go ahead, figure out how to take it out of the text. It's there, friends. David was complex and stormy and full of character flaws, and Yahweh's working with and through flawed human beings would also go on to be a major through line of the Bible. So he was a poor choice with a lot of flaws, and yet somehow despite this, interestingly to the people of Israel then and now, David remains the idealized king. He's the ideal king, which tells us a ton about them and how they understood the God that they served and what they might expect of themselves in terms of perfection. You see, the story of David is the ultimate underdog story. And who could write an underdog story better than the Jewish people who knew exactly what it meant to be the least and the last? If David could rise to a place of prominence, then anyone could be used by this God named Yahweh. King David stands for the very ideal that nobodies could become somebodies in the world that Yahweh was trying to build. Which is really good news for us being a bunch of nobodies in Austin, Texas all these years later. I have to be honest, friend, I love the story and the stories of David. Rather than throw it out because it may not have been exactly the global phenomenon that I once thought that it was, I say we sit with it and let the beauty of this story rise in us and inspire us. In particular, a couple of things stand out. His soft spot for the unattractive, the outcasts, and the outsiders. My favorite part about the early chapters in Samuel about David's life, those early years when he had been anointed king, but Saul was still on the throne, and so he was fleeing for his life because Saul wanted to murder him. My favorite thing is how he took the wily and disenfranchised, disenfranchised, washed-up warriors who had aged out of influence and needed a new cause to fight for. He assembled them, and they lived on the lamb. They lived in caves, often serving as paid mercenaries for the Philistines, and then again for the Israelites, whoever was offering the better deal. But he gathered the rejects and the retreads, the undesirables and the untouchables. And that means something to me because David was one of them. Now we would go on historically to see that thread trace all the way through Jesus. Jesus did the same thing. But that's not the point of David's life. He knew how to lead men and women who had been rejected by the mainstreams of society. My favorite David story, the one that's most dear to me, I still remember my uh, original pastor preaching on this. It would have been, I'm just going to shock you, it would have been probably 1983 or 84. I am that old, yes I am. But my favorite story is about a physically incapacitated man, a grandson of a King Saul named Mephibosheth. 
He was an heir to the throne. He, he was in the, the kingly uh, dynastic line. And so David probably should have had him murdered. But when David found out that he existed, living in a little town called Lodabar, which in Hebrew simply means a place of no record, a place of no word, a place of nothing, David reaches out to him and invites him to move to the capital to join him at his table three meals a day because that was the kind of king that we're dealing with. Now, I don't know about physical dimensions of David's domain, but an ancient king who acted this way would have been very, very different. We could have called him best in class at the time. You see, the scriptures don't say that David obeyed Yahweh. The scriptures literally say that he had Yahweh's heart. David remained humble and gracious till the end. Of course, he would go on to make many mistakes, especially as a father. He couldn't even face the terror of speaking up to his own son. He fled the city rather than have a hard word with his son that he loved. He would make many mistakes. He was ignorant and hard-headed on many matters, but he remained humble towards his God. And so this pre-final thought, don't move yet. Next time I say final thought. Now, I've made a strong case to you this morning, and it comes from the archaeological record of the ancient Near East. Stories about King David are greatly embellished and unproven by external sources, and I wish we had some, but we simply do not. But that doesn't make him meaningless. He remains a very central figure to our Jewish brothers and sisters, which frankly should be more than enough for us. But this thought is, is intriguing me increasingly over time. If you were able to take creative license while developing the ideal character at the center of your national identity, at the center of your stories of meaning, and if you could add or take away anything you wanted, why would you end up with the man who begins as a nobody and remains deeply flawed to the bitter end? Why would you? If you could, I've always wondered this. This is such a dumb thought. I shouldn't say this. You know when you get on an airplane and you open that little threefold safety thing? And it shows you these different procedures. If you're drawing a human being to do these different things, why would you draw them so awkward and ugly like they do? Like you're drawing them. Make them look decent and attractive. But no, we have these weird, it's the guy with the schlumpy shirt and the crooked tie. I'm like, just, if you're creating it, why would you not create it ideal? This thought intrigues me about ancient Israel. I mean, if you're controlling the scribes and you're doing the writing and the compiling, why would you preserve any account whatsoever of his sexual excesses or his moral failures? Why? What's the point? Oh, I wonder if your heart knows. How does that help you make the case that he was indeed a great man worth following? Oh, friend, I think that the Jewish people have always understood that the greatness of a human being had less to do with pedigree and weakness than it did with raw trust in God. Y'all, David wasn't great because he ruled a kingdom that stretched from Egypt to the Euphrates. He wasn't great because his throne lasted forever as was prophesied to him by Nathan. It didn't actually last forever. In fact, it failed nearly immediately after his life. That wasn't why he was great. David was great because of his great love of Yahweh. And in this regard, he was unrivaled, unparalleled, untouchable in the ancient and modern worlds. Friends, this series, that, this preaching series that we're on has forced me into hours and hours of research and reading into the ancient Israelites and I'm more and more aware by the day how little I actually know. Who were these ancient people? And why was human thought, has it been so deeply and profoundly shaped by what they could see and what they could intuit? Did they actually go around borrowing and adapting and reinterpreting other people's epic stories of God and battles and divine revelation and such? They did, friend. It's not even news. They appropriated everything in sight over and over again, which helps answer the question why they're so important. 
the way they interpreted the world around them, here's, here's the essential piece. Blending it into a single story of a God who reigned unrivaled doesn't undermine their contribution to the world's great cosmovisions. To the contrary, this made the most powerful point of all, namely that all systems bear traces of God's revelation. All stories are actually connected. All things are one, if only we could see it. However you situate the ancient Israelites and their beloved shepherd boy who became their ideal chieftain and warlord, however you understand that in the broader landscape of religious revelations, you have to admit this fact that they were the first monotheists in history. Around this, there is consensus, textual, archaeological, sociological, anthropological, and literary. Monotheism as the core of faith and identity is their discovery. They found it first and they said it first. And it would go on to become the fundamental premise of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. And in case you think that's a small thing, that accounts for nearly five billion of of the world's people today. Did David slay lions and bears? Yep. With his own hands as a child? Did he drop a nine-foot giant with a single stone? Did his kingdom control everything from Egypt to Mesopotamia? Could such a cold-blooded opportunist murderer really be the philosophical, ethical, political predecessor of Jesus, of all people, the man of peace and meekness as we know him? I don't know. Will we ever unearth definitive proof that David was a king, the king of our fanciful imaginations? As big as we can think, are we certain it matters in the end, will say the good rabbi as he shrugs and puffs on his cigar? And might all of these questions of fact and proof and history just serve to distract us from this deeper point, which might be this. God can still do mighty things with imperfect people who remain humble. Mighty things, history-bending things. I'm talking about you, and I'm talking about me. I sure hope that's the case, friend. In my own way, I think I know that it is, and I'm guessing, I'm guessing you do too.